Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Book Network. I'm Deidre Tyler, host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking with L.M. Weeks, author of Bottle Lightning. How are you doing today? I'm excellent, Deidre. Thank you for having me on. Thank you. I wonder if you could tell us something about yourself and how you got started with this project. Um, well, it's a long story, but I'll, I'll try to keep it short. Um, I uh, practiced uh, law for um, almost 35 years, and uh, I worked. I practiced in both New York and, and Tokyo for quite a long time, representing clients in their mostly corporate clients in their cross-border acquisitions and intellectual property matters. And uh, over the years, I I had in mind this character um, for for a novel, uh, a legal thriller, and um, finally decided about five years ago that uh, if I didn't sit down and write it, I was never going to write it. So uh, I finally sat down and, and did it. Well, tell us about Thorn, your major character. So, uh, Thorn, um, well, there's, there's a, a, a famous quote um, by uh, an author, P.D. James, I think it, it, it is, uh, that uh, all fiction is autobiographical and, and uh, much autobiography uh, is fiction. I'm paraphrasing there. And Thorn is no different. Um, he was... Um, uh, based on my experiences practicing law in in Japan as an international lawyer, but my son is um, biracial. His mother is Japanese, and so I decided to make Torn biracial as well. And I was born in Alaska, so I decided to make him uh, from Alaska, but practicing in Japan, practicing law in Japan. Now you talk about. Japanese versus the United States culture in your book. Can you describe something about the differences in working in both of those locations? Oh, that's interesting. Um, well, um, uh, New, New York, for example, and of course, the U.S. being a very large country, 
Um, there are some pretty big cultural differences, um, uh, even within the U.S. For example, Texas is very different from New York, and and California is is different again from from Texas and New York. But in, in Japan, um, um, much of the business is relationship oriented, so it can take quite a while to develop a relationship with a client. Um, but once you have developed that relationship, clients tend to be very um, uh, loyal. Uh, but there's also a burgeoning um, startup culture in Japan. And so you've got quite a, uh, a few innovative, smaller companies that uh, are, are growing. And it's really a, a good thing to see. Policing in Japan, how is this different well, that's a really good question. It is, um, it is, is it, there, there's some uh, pros and cons. You have a very sophisticated bar and um, very good judges who tend to be impartial on the one hand. On the other hand, uh, the police can hold you for up to 23 days uh, without uh, charging you. And uh, they can also uh, interrogate you without a lawyer. Although, uh, things are changing, and and more recently, they've been allowing uh, uh, your defense attorney to join you in the interrogations. But uh, still, at this point, they can they can hold you for more than three weeks and uh, and interrogate you, and that uh, results in uh, most convictions being based upon um, uh, confessions. Now, that's true in the U.S. as well, uh, but for different reasons, because as you know, in the U.S. Um, Basically, uh, people must be charged and um, re- either released or, or held without bail uh, within 24 hours. Now, the interrogation that Thorne went through, uh, there was really a good description there about it in your book. Uh, can you tell us how he got released without telling us all the stories? Well, he was fortunate because his... His lawyer is a former prosecutor, and uh, she was able to, and he's also a, a well-known lawyer in Japan. Um, he's admitted to practice in both New York and Japan. And so she was able to convince uh, the police um, and the prosecutor with whom she had a, a relationship uh, when she worked as a prosecutor that uh, uh, Torn was not a flight risk. And also... Um, uh, the police got torn to agree that to give up his passports and not leave the country uh, without their permission. Japanese Americans, how do they deal with mixed race families? Are there some special challenges here? Well, um, the the you're sort of betwixt and between. Um, uh, whether you're in Japan or in the U.S., I think it's easier in the U.S. Um, uh, I think my son living in Japan, for example, he was always um, trying to prove that he was just as Japanese as the Japanese. And um, and he it's really uh, a difficult task. Either people say, well, you're not really Japanese because you're you're uh, one of your parents is, is not Japanese or you, you you are Japanese. So you should you should know better. Um, I, I think uh, I know a lot of. Um, people who are, are, are mixed race um, from from different countries, um, half French, for example, uh, half Japanese, um, half American, ha- half, half Japanese. 
And uh, a lot of them tend to sort of live in this, um, um, uh, in the, in the, a very interesting world that allows them to slip back and forth between, say, the United States and Japan, like a, a shapeshifter. And my son, for example, can come into New York and immediately transform into New Yorker and realizes how to act and it's second nature. And it's the same when he's, when he's in Japan. You talk about um, connection, and I thought this was interesting. Do you think that biracial people connect with other biracial people on a different level? I think so because um, that's actually quite a good question. I think it's because their their experiences are are quite unique and uh, to them, and there's not a lot of those kinds of people. Although um, the the number of biracial people uh, throughout the world is increasing. And I think it is, is the future. I think it's a very, uh, positive development, but they sort of had their own code. Um, and, um, uh, and, and only other bi- biracial people can really relate to, to what they're going through. Why is it so important to have a uh, cultural background and experience to write a believable story? Well, it's a good question. You need to have that um, um, that that's sensitivity to the to the subject matter, and I think that's you know one reason there's that axiom that you should write uh, what you know um, because it does uh, resonate, um, I think, with readers um, when it's you know it's true. And uh, even though I've spent more than half of my adult life. Uh, living and, and, and working in Japan. I, I myself am not biracial, even though my son is. So I actually um, had the book read by um, some beta readers who, who are biracial before I published it. And I, I thought I had got most of, um, if not everything, right. Uh, but they still had some very helpful comments uh, that elevated, I think, to a, a next level of realism. You, you also talk about renewable energy and technology. Uh, how did you do that research? Oh, that's a, that, that's a good question. So I decided that I wanted the technology to be some form of renewable energy, but I didn't know what I wanted it to be. And um, I was actually fishing in the Everglades when we were overtaken by a thunderstorm. And so we had to hunker down and we couldn't get to land. We had to hunker down in the bottom of the skiff. Um, out on the water while these giant lightning bolts dropped all around us. And I thought, um, wow, there's a lot of energy in that lightning. And uh, when I got home, um, I did some research on it and found out that um, uh, science knows the the theory um, as to how uh, lightning is generated, but not the the actual nuts and bolts, the mechanics of, of how it's generated. And I thought that's, that's very interesting. There's a gray area that I can, I can work in. Um, and, and lightning is also very um, cinematic and exciting. And so I thought if uh, somebody could actually figure out a way to generate it on demand um, in a clean uh, way um, that's scalable, so you could use it at your home all the way up to a giant power plant um, that could solve our, energy and climate change issues. You also have a lot of description about motorcycle riding. Um, tell us about your experience of motorcycle riding. Well, that's um, 
a, a passion of mine. And um, as an aside, uh, my my editor at one point in time, his his comment was less motorcycle fetishness. So I actually ended up cutting quite a bit of it before we published the book. But um, I, I started motorcycle riding in, in Japan um, in the early 80s. And over time, I uh, uh, sort of moved up the chain from from mod- mopeds to uh, finally, at one point in time, I had a 1600cc Kawasaki Vulcan, and then later on this BMW uh, 1200 called a K1200 LT, which is just a wonderful uh, motorcycle. And Japan is perfect uh, for riding motorcycles because um, they have great roads and a lot of them are mountainous and they're very windy and uh, beautiful countryside. And people are, um, even even car drivers are uh, taught to watch out for motorcycles. So it's uh, like the perfect place uh, to drive, lots of different landscape, seascapes, and uh, driving in the city is also uh, interesting because it's very it's very busy, um, and I just I just love it. Um, there are obviously uh, risks, but uh, it's uh, very exciting. You also have romance in your book. Tell us about the three ladies in the book. Uh, so the, the the main character Torn um, is an excellent excellent lawyer and. Uh, and and he understands business quite well, and he's um, bilingual, um, biracial, bicultural. Um, he's the perfect l- lawyer to have in Japan. He's running the office of a a global, the Tokyo office of a global uh, law firm, and and working on for a lot of technology companies. Uh, but he's uh, he's got some relationship issues and some commitment issues, and um, so he's juggling. Uh, three, um, quite interesting, uh, women. And, um, it's, um, one of the underlying themes of the, of, of the book is, um, him trying to, um, address this, uh, major personal flaw that he has. Now, um, the wife dies. Tell us about his reaction to that so he he was um, trying to get out of that relationship for quite a while, and because of the laws in Japan, which are unlike um, the laws in the U.S., uh, they're they're not uh, no fault divorce laws. He he um, could not get out of that uh, that marriage because, um, well, essentially, um, Yukie his wife wouldn't grant him uh, the divorce, but um, he um, she's the mother of his children. And, um, they, they were married for quite some time. And so he has a very, um, um, he has very, uh, he's obviously very saddened, uh, by it. And he also feels responsible for it to a certain extent. Now, uh, once she did, um, once she was murdered, what about, tell us about the culture of funerals in, in Japan. So I, I, it, it's a fascinating subject for me because it's, and I've been to funerals, um, unfortunately in both, uh, Japan and the U S and they're, they're really quite, uh, different. Uh, the ones in, um, in, um, in, in Japan, I would say are more like an Irish or, or a Jewish funeral. They're, they're more in your face. Um, the body is often lying in state at, at the home. 
Um, there's no embalming. It's they just use dry ice, and uh, typically the funeral is happens pretty quickly, um, and the burial happens pretty quickly um, after uh, the person passes away. But they also um, 99% of the time end up uh, cremating uh, the body. And that's a, you, you don't just hand it over to the body, to the funeral home and, and, and come back and they give you the urn. You're actually there during that process. And so the, the wake is very sort of in your face in the sense that the body is lying in state in the house and people come and go and bring food and people often sit around the body and, and sometimes even talk to the person and uh, talk about the person while they're drinking and eating. And then um, at the crematorium, typically after everybody gathers and they push the uh, casket with the body into the, essentially the the furnace of the crematorium, then you go upstairs and eat um, while you're waiting um, uh, for the cremation to, to, to be done. And it's just really sort of a surreal, um, process, particularly coming, coming from, uh, the U S. Now you talk about the bone ceremony. Tell us a little about that. Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a, a weird one. Um, and very heart wrenching, um, particularly if you're close to the person, um, so they they slide the they, they they the body is put on this plate, um, and they slide that into the furnace, and then after the cremation is done, they slide slide it out, um, and only the bones are are left, and then the the family goes through two by two uh, with chopsticks, and um, each uh, pair of family members picks up a bone and puts it in the urn. And that's why in Japan, when you're eating, you never hand uh, food from one person to another, from one person's chopsticks to another person's chopsticks. You always put it on the other person's plate. And then the other thing is that um, typically in people's houses and sometimes at their grave sites, people will bring a bowl of rice with chopsticks and and put it in front of the grave site or in front of the little shrine to that person in the, in the home with the chopstick sticking up and straight up and down out of the rice. And that's why you never at dinner time stick your, your chopsticks in the rice um, because it, it brings back those, those memories of funerals past. Now, what's the relationship between Japan, China, and Russia in, in international law? You talk about that in your book. Um, well, um, I, 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 I think that the, the, the major difference is that in Japan, the rule of law um, actually exists. So um, there is due process and it's, it's different from the U.S., but there is due process. And um, so you do have certain protections from uh, unlawful search and seizure, uh, for example. And you have very professional, by and large, uh, police. Um, Japan is a is a representative democracy, um, like most most democracies it tends to be um uh, messy but it is a, a democracy i think uh, the the big difference between um china and uh russia on the one hand and japan on the other is that um while uh J- japan's culture is is i mean it, it's very unique uh again it's still a democracy whereas china and and russia are both author- authoritarian basically uh dictatorships 
And so you don't have uh, due process um, or real due, real due process. And um, I, I, unfortunately, uh, but um, I, I've been to both countries, both Russia and China many, many times. And uh, both are, are, are fascinating places. But I think um, it's much safer from a due process standpoint uh, to, to be in Japan. Now, you also talk about the gang culture in Japan. Um, there was a lot of description of, of that culture. Can you tell us, is that growing or decreasing? What's it, It's actually decreasing because there's been some real crackdowns. And there's there's been different, historically different kinds of gangs. So there's there's been motorcycle gangs that they call Bosozoku um, uh, that's really started in the, the, the 60s. Um, and, um, and as those people age, they graduated to what are called, uh, these Yankee gangs, um, which are really sort of over the hill motorcycle gangs. And, and usually those gangs are, are, are pretty, uh, benign. They may take off their exhaust pipes and make a lot of noise. Um, but, but typically not very dangerous. The Yakuza on the other hand, um, used to control, a lot of illicit businesses, um, drug dealing, um, prostitution, uh, illegal gambling, and legal gambling like pachinko is very popular uh, in Japan. Any gun running they controlled, but there there's been a lot of crackdowns over the last uh, thirty years. So it's it's actually um, been shrinking consistently um, since the nineteen eighties. Um, you also had that trip to Russia in your book. Tell us about the Russian pilots, the helicopter pilots, and that whole series of, of how life was or is in Russia. You talk about outhouses. <laughs> yeah, the Russian Far East is like the wild, wild west, or as, as we call it, I call it in the book, the wild, wild east. Um, the Russian Far East is, um, is actually east of what they consider to be Siberia. So it's, 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 it's interesting in the sense that it's, it's east, even further east than most of China. Um, but it's, it's like Europe in the east. So you go to the cities there and, and it's all, uh, for the most part, other than the native, uh, uh, Russians there, um, it's, it's all, uh, Caucasians, uh, or what they call right white Russians, but you've got a landmass that's roughly the size of Alaska, Western um, Canada and the Northwestern U.S., um, but it's only got six million people in in the entire area, whereas right across the border in the first state um, that's that crossed the the border and also this giant river in China, there's a hundred million Chinese right there on the border. So it's this vast um, wilderness area, uh, perhaps the most wild place on the planet, and um, since there are uh, there are very few roads. The only way to get from one place to another is, is by helicopter. And, um, um, they're building more roads now, but, uh, the, the, as, as a consequence, these, these helicopter pilots really have a, a lot of uh, power, um, in, in the Russian far East. And, um, and they fly these, these just massive, uh, helicopters around to deliver, um, people and goods, uh, to different places. How prevalent is stealing technology? 
that 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 happens has happened a lot. Um, and there's a long history of that going back to, well, going back to uh, basically forever since humans started um, um, uh, in, inventing things. But if you if you go back in history to the 19th century, the U.S. was accused of stealing, for example, railroad technology from um, uh, from from the from the U.K. Um, and then after World War II, there was a fair amount of. Um, shall we say, adoption of technology by the Japanese. Um, many many um, U.S. companies would call it stealing or, or trade secret theft. And then um, uh, when the Chinese adopted, after they adopted capitalism uh, in, in the 1980s, <clears throat> they, they started forcing technology transfers um, from uh, f- foreign companies coming into China to do business. And in addition to the forced technology transfers, um, they, they, some companies, some Chinese companies actually, uh, engaged in outright, uh, trade, trade secret misappropriation. I even had, um, clients who had, uh, uh, facilities, uh, uh, research facilities in countries outside of China that suffered trade secret theft by employees that were hired by Chinese companies to steal some technology and transfer it to them. So it's it's been rampant, uh, to 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 be honest. I, I don't I don't think that should be a surprise to anybody. But um, uh, yeah, there's been a lot of it over the decades. So do you believe that there are countries or companies that will be willing to murder someone just to get this technology? I would not put anything past um, when it comes to. To that kind of technology. So when you've got a technology that's going to completely change uh, the way people generate electricity um, and that would, for example, uh, basically destroy the oil and gas industry uh, and or nuclear power and or <clears throat> all other existing renewable energy, such as um, wind and solar, I would not put it past somebody to to in, in engage in in homicide to prevent the destruction of you know multi billion dollar businesses and it's not just corporations but as you mentioned uh, there there's a lot of uh, countries such as Saudi Arabia uh, Russia the United States for that matter Venezuela um, Iran Iraq that have a huge have huge stakes in the oil and gas industry um, countries in in West Africa. And for them to lose, you know, that income stream uh, would would just be a disaster for the, their economies. So I, I wouldn't put it past, um, given the interest involved, I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if that happened at all. Now, how does your fishing hobby tie into the climate change aspect of your novel? Uh, well, I, I didn't really write much, even though I am a fly fishing fanatic, uh, write much about fishing, um, in the book. I think there's one small, uh, reference, but it, it definitely, I have noticed it, um, the impact, uh, that, that climate change has had on fisheries, uh, in, in different places, including Alaska and the Pacific Northwest, but, but Japan as well. Um, and even, uh, the, the, the Florida Keys. So it's just, it's another indication of, 
how the climate is changing. Now, you had a little brief episode of an earthquake. How did that tie into your book? So I was actually uh, in in Japan on March 11, 2011, when the giant Fukushima earthquake happened that uh, ended up, you know, the tsunami ended up um, damaging the Fukushima uh, uh, nuclear power plant that, that ended up melting down. So uh, I, <clears throat> I I was in the office when that happened, and um, it lasted for over six minutes. And one point in time, I thought our building, which is, is relatively new, uh, might actually fall over. And it was just such a, uh, and then, and then the, 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 the aftermath, the people leaving. So most many non-Japanese left the country the next day because they were worried about, um, the nuclear fallout from the, um, uh, from, from the, the, the power plant, uh, the nuclear power plant in Fukushima. And, um, and in the town, which is usually a bustling, very busy, sort of twenty-four um, seven go-go city, turned into this ghost town where, you know, if there were zombies walking around, I wouldn't have been surprised. It was just very surreal. Even a lot of Japanese left and went south or or, or west because of their concerns about um, about radiation. Um, so it was just something that um, really had a huge impact on me, and uh, I thought it would be. A, an, an interesting scene because it's also it's earthquakes and tsunamis are just a part of, of, um, of, of living in Japan. Uh, they happen quite frequently. The, the entire, uh, country for the most part is on living on, is on fault lines. Um, and there's, there's hot water wherever you go, almost in the country, there's hot water very close to the surface, which means you have great natural hot water, you know, hot springs, but that's because of all of the volcanic activity that's right under the surface. What is the message you would like the reader to leave with once they finish your book? Oh, that's a good question. I, I think that um, the, the, the thing about Torn that he represents is a very flawed human who is, is called upon to do do great things um for the benefit of of others and um and also that things are not always what they seem well i've taken up enough of your time what is the next project you'll be working on i'm actually working on a a novel right now that's not even a legal thriller it's um contemporary novel about um uh tournament fly fishing in the florida keys Wow, we'll be looking forward to that book. Thank you so much for being on the program. Thank you. I really appreciate it.